Our text today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Hear the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Enemies. What do you think of when I say the word enemies? Could be Batman versus the Joker. Could be Harry Potter versus Lord Voldemort. Or maybe it's Jadis, the, the, the witch from Narnia. You could go a whole different route, too. You may think of enemies in geographical terms. You may think of the Nazis as enemies. You may think of communism because of its devastating effects on the world. Or if you've been in war, you may have experienced actual enemies trying to kill you directly. People on opposing forces where it is literally life and death. And then there's Hollywood's take on enemies becoming friends, frenemies. You could see such movies as 10 Things I Hate About You, or Clueless, or even Beauty and the Beast. And you can't forget political enemies either. Soon, commercials will be flooding your television sets. You should just kill your TVs. Uh, telling you that the other guy is evil, and he's the enemy of you, and so you just have to make sure your people win and they lose. Enemies. We can list all kinds of enemies off. I would bet if I asked any of you individually about enemies, you could make the same kinds of list. But what if I asked you who your enemies are? Can you answer that? Do, do you have enemies? Do you have people that are fighting against you? I do. Do you know who these enemies are? Can you name them? I can name mine. There's a pastor, his name is Toby Sumter, and Toby Sumter likes to ask people to name their enemies. It's a shocking question to people sometimes, and a lot of times they say that they can't. And when they say that they can't name off their enemies, what Toby says is that they lack conviction. And I think he's right, because when you have conviction, you'll end up with enemies. Because having conviction means that you're standing firm on something. And if you stand firm on something, you will have enemies. Jesus had conviction. Jesus stood firm. Jesus had enemies. And we can't expect to be followers of Jesus and not have enemies as well. So today we are going to take a look at what it means to have enemies and then what we're to do with these enemies. And it's fitting because last week we spoke about turning the other cheek. We, we spoke about not returning folly for folly. And it's the perfect lead into as we end chapter five, one commentator I read called chapter five is training for us to have the attitudes of the Beatitudes. So as we, we train ourselves into the attitude of Beatitudes, this is a fitting way for us to end this section of text. because. We look at people who insult us, and sometimes people who insult us are our enemies, and sometimes people who insult us are not our enemies. 
The difference is enemies want to cause us direct harm. They, they want to take steps to actually hurt us. Verse 43 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So this is the same as we've seen in previous sections as we've worked through chapter 5. Jesus tells us and is telling, telling them about a command that they're already aware of, something that the Jews of the day and even some of the non-Jews of the day would have been aware of. And like previous texts that we've studied, he's going to tell us about the actual fulfillment of this law. So we talked about oaths and divorce and lust and murder and insults. Jesus is going to directly approach the perversion of the law that the Pharisees had perverted. So the Pharisees pervert the law, and so he's going to talk about the actual fulfillment of the law. We have to remember that the Pharisees were kind of the epitome of self-righteousness religious people. They were full of their own religious self-interest, and they had actual authority to back that up. They lacked humility, they lacked the awareness of their own sin, they lacked mercy, and they most certainly lacked compassion for people that were not within their camp. So it's important to remember, too, that these, these Pharisees, they were scholars, they were legal scholars. They were well-versed in, in Torah and rabbinic law. Rabbis, which just means teacher, and scribes, they are experts in Jewish religious law. Even today, if you wanted to become ordained as an Orthodox rabbi, your ordination exams would all be about Jewish law and its application. So just like we saw in the previous passages, the Pharisees bastardized the law to suit themselves. They found workarounds around the law so they could do what they wanted to do while still claiming to be righteous religious people. And it is that bastardization of the law that Jesus is speaking of when he says, you have heard it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And specifically, Jesus is referring to a, to a piece of text from Leviticus, 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's worth reading that again. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Where in there did it say to hate your enemies? What, what is it Jesus talking about? You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, to understand what he's talking about, you have to understand the Pharisees and how they approached the law. So sometimes they would read what wasn't written into the law to make a determination of something that most likely suited them. So if the law says you must love your neighbors yourself, well, that only means your neighbors, right? It doesn't specifically call out loving your enemy, so they're probably allowed to hate their enemy, right? See, this is how lawyers play legal games now, and it's how the Pharisees did it back then, because there is nothing new under the sun. But they want to take it a step further. Not only were they reading into the parts of it that, that, that they wanted out of it, but then they would look back and reference parts of Scripture that seemed to back up their hateful attitude and approach to their enemies. Things like Psalm 11:5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Deuteronomy 37, And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. We can't forget Psalm 139, 21, 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? 
And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. You can even see similar language in Revelation in the New Testament. The book of Joshua is like a whole book just about war against God's enemies. So what are we to do with this? Is the Bible in conflict? You can shake your head no, because it's not. So does one part tell us to hate our enemies, like the Pharisees believed, or are we to love them as Jesus is about to tell us? Now, I'm not going to spoil it for the rest of the sermon, but I'm sure most of you already know that the Pharisees were not correct. So there is much language in the Bible referring to the enemies of God. Psalm 139 that we just read is a really great example of about that, about where David is writing about hating enemies. But there's a very important distinction to make. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to hate individuals. We aren't to harbor hatred in our hearts for them. As we discussed last week, we are definitely not allowed to return folly to folly. We're to turn the other cheek. We're not to respond with vengeance. We talked last week about the difference between defense and vengeance. Those are big differences. Defense is allowed. Vengeance is not. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for wrath, for righteous wrath, for hating things that God hates. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We're allowed to be in righteous anger. We're allowed to be mad at the things that God is mad at. We must hate and abhor evil, but we aren't to have hatred in our heart for individuals. We can't hate our individual enemies. See, this is how the Pharisees manipulated the law to suit themselves. They wanted the opportunity to define how they loved and how they hated so that it would fill their selfish desires to be able to enact revenge in their own personal justice. And I get this. Like we talked about last week, that, that interest I had in you know, kind of revenge porn movies like John Wick. If you missed last week's sermon, it's, it's on the website. My sinful heart is more than happy to hate my enemies. Even this week, we've had a lot of experience with enemies. And and if I wasn't in faith, this would have been the perfect week to want to lash out and respond in revenge and hatred. That's because enemies, like we said before, they're actually working towards causing harm. They're not just saying nasty things about you. They're taking steps to intentionally hurt you. Your enemy isn't just insulting you, though they probably did that too. They want to hurt your life. They want to take something from you. They want to cause damage to you. They want to do this for either real or perceived wrongs. Perceived wrongs that may be real in their mind but aren't real in reality. Their ultimate goal is to hurt us. See, we can feel so self-righteous in hating our enemies, can't we? Even to the point where we can create mutual bonds with others around the hatred of mutual enemies, and then we develop relationships based on hatred. I know all of you probably know people who act like this. I would almost guess most of us have acted like this at some point in our life, being united to others through mutual hate instead of love. Kristen and the kids had an experience with this last week. They were doing school in a public place, And they happened to be sitting next to this group of like-minded people, not like-minded for us, but like-minded with themselves. And they were united around some political discussions. It was their group of mutual support. But it was support based on hatred. It was bonding about hating the enemy. 
And they weren't bonding together about how they get rid of their mutual sin and bonding together in the love of Jesus Christ, but instead of their actual hatred for individuals that they were willing to name. Hatred, and no joy, was being discussed passionately. So what do you think happened? Well, people started egging each other on. They started to encourage mutual hatred. They started to encourage more hatred. And then they felt righteous in their hatred. Let me ask you this. When you have experienced this as an outsider or as a participant, how did you feel when you were done? See, our self-righteous hatred never makes us feel better. It may, just for that, that moment, because we don't sin because we don't like it. We sin because we do like it. I've used this example before. It's like temptation. You can't tempt me to mushrooms or Brussels sprouts. It's impossible. There's no temptation great enough. I hate that stuff. But you can tempt me to eat the whole bag of gummy bears, like the pound bag of gummy bears. It doesn't, it, I don't even know if I have enough self-control not to eat the whole bag of gummy bears. We, we're drawn, sin, what we're drawn to are the things that make us feel good. So that self-righteous hatred, it feels good for a minute, but it never, ever, ever leaves us feeling good in the long run. There is a big difference between righteous wrath and anger, as it's defined by God, and our own selfish interests and agendas that we can push forward. This is the world that the Pharisees were in, one of self-righteousness, and it's one that a lot of people in our present day are in right now. See, we have a culture that is built around hating the enemy. We have a culture that is built around this satanic idea of self-interest. And we have a culture that glorifies the self and glorifies feelings above all else. Now, thankfully, just like our other parts of Scripture that we've been studying, is that Jesus flips this notion right on its head. And there is literally no better of a time than now to be reminded of his words and commands. Verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in his who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. I am sure that most of you that have been in church for any part of your life have heard these verses before. But have you really heard these verses? Have you really thought and prayed about what the Lord is saying in these verses? Because if you have, then you know how difficult, how sometimes impossible this commandment can seem. You will know how hard it is when your sinful heart wants to drive that bus and retaliate and bring your own justice. When, when it wants that, that self-righteousness cloaked as righteous wrath, revenge, when it wants to hate and not love. There are two imperatives in the Greek in that verse 44. The imperatives, the commands, are the words love and the word pray. They're commands. They're not optional. We are required to do them. They are imperative for us to do. We are required to love our enemies, and we are required to pray for those who persecute us. But the question is, how do we even do that? Because if you thought about the consequences of this, we have consequences to all of our actions. Many times we only talk about consequences in a negative way, but, but all of our actions have a result, have a consequence. Loving our enemy has a consequence. But before we, we dive into the how we're going to do this, 
I want to look at verses 46 and 47 because I actually think that it sets the stage for the how and the why. 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, there's a, there's a trap when we think about loving our neighbors and our enemies. The trap is we can convince ourselves that we're doing it when we're not actually doing it. And that's what Jesus does. He, he cuts right deep at us in those two verses. See, he tells us if we just love the people that love us back, where's the reward? It's easy to love people who love us, isn't it? It's super easy to love people who love us. When we feel reciprocated, it's so easy to do things for other people. We feel appreciated. It actually motivates us to do things for other people. See, our sinful hearts have, have set up so much of life as this, this quid pro quo. I will do for you if you do for me first. Or if you don't do for me, then I most certainly won't do for you. And we even treat love that way. And that's what makes it so easy to love somebody who loves us first. But Jesus takes this example farther. He speaks of tax collectors doing that, loving those that love them. And, and this example of a tax collector is an important one because the tax collectors were the dregs of society in the first century. They were Jews who worked for the oppressor collecting money from their own people. Nobody was friends in the Jewish community with the tax collectors. They were despised people. They were the lowest of the low in that social hierarchy. And Jesus reminds them and us that even these people, even these people who had basically turned on their own people, even they love those who love them. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just use the example of tax collectors. He brings the pagans into it too. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles even do the same? Even the pagans, even the Gentiles can greet their own brothers. Even they, the, the people who actively deny the existence of God, can still greet their own brothers in love. And we see that now, don't we? We see that today. We see pagans all around us, people who deny that God even exists, people who deny the authority of Scripture, are able to love those who love them. Family, it is so easy to love people who love us. It is so much harder to love those who hate us, to love those who want to hurt us. In fact, many times it can feel impossible. So it begs the question, and I can't say this without the song getting stuck in my head, but what is love? See, the thing is, most people think of love as a feeling or an emotion. You say, oh, I've fallen in love. I love her, I love him, I love pizza, I love my kids, I love brisket. I do love brisket. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is he just talking about that feeling of love that makes us feel warm? The Bible uses different Greek words, there's four of them, predominantly used for love. It's one of the things that's beautiful when you get to read Scripture in its original language. We're limited in English. That's why I can say, I love my wife, I love pizza, I love my kids, I love brisket, and all of those things, and I love Jesus. All of those things should be different, right? I shouldn't love pizza the same way I love Kristen. I do like pizza, though. 
Highly inflected languages like Greek and Hebrew give us multiple words for the same thing to delve into the deeper meaning of what that actually looks like. And and the word used for love in this passage in Greek Greek is agape. And agape is our deepest love. And it's so much more than a feeling. It's an action. It's something we go do. It It is something that we are willing to perform. It is the willingness to participate in sacrificial acts on behalf of somebody else. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Agape is not devoid of feelings. It isn't devoid of an emotional loving response, but it is an action. But it is not a dispassionate action. You see, we can't be in sacrificial love for someone if we lack an appropriate inward loving attitude towards them. So while agape is a love and action, it must be love and action that has the appropriate inward attitude. And see, this is the type of love that Jesus tells us that we have to love our enemies with. It's the same. If we are to pray for those who persecute us, we can't pray for people that we don't have an appropriate inward love for. We can't pray through gritted teeth I really love them so much, Lord. So what we go back to a few weeks ago, our outsides and our insides have to match. So how do we even do this? That's the question, isn't it? How are we supposed to to love and pray for people who hate us, love and pray for people who hurt us? We know that we're supposed to, but how do we do this? Well, we have to first start off in our own hearts. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The reality and the truth of it, family, is we are the enemies of God. Have you ever really thought about that? That our sin, our actions, our hearts... They have caused us to be direct enemies of God. When we fail to follow God's law, when we fail to follow his commandments perfectly, which we can't in a sinful world, we make ourselves his enemy. I don't want the weightiness of that to fall short on any of us, the fact that we have all been enemies of God. We have all been deserving of God's wrath. But there's hope. Because just like in that verse that Paul, that I quoted from Paul, from Romans, God has reconciled us to him. Through his son, through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, we are no longer enemies of God. But instead, his adopted children, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Before the world was created, God knew you. God loved you, God picked you, God elected you, and he adopted you. It really is incredible news. Like, it is the best news. And and I know that many of you have been in church for some time, and you've probably heard all of these verses before. What I'm going to ask you today is to really think about them, to really impress them upon your heart, to really pray about these. Because when you really think about it, this is grace. This is love, that we, enemies of God, people whose hearts can be full of sin and revenge and lust and envy and spite and covetousness, all of us here act in ways that we shouldn't even know we should, 
all of us here miss the mark sometimes. Sometimes we miss it a little bit, and sometimes we miss it a lot of bit. It's we, that's us. We're those people. But we are loved, and we are saved. And not just saved, but we're adopted. We are the adopted children of God. And I've said this before, when I adopted the Blondies, I didn't know that I was going to get new birth certificates that list me as their father. So we get all brand, brand new birth certificates, and it lists me as father. Which makes sense, because they are entitled, good or bad, to all the rights and benefits that come from me being their father. When God adopts us, it's the same. We are his children. We get all the rights and benefits that come from being his child. He says to each of us, I love you. You're my child. You're reconciled to me. My inheritance is your inheritance. My kingdom is your kingdom. It's that God that sent his son to die for us, to die a death we should have died, to carry the burden of our sin. That family, that is agape. That is sacrificial love. And see, the thing is, if we don't understand deeply God's love for us, then there's no way we could ever understand how we're supposed to love our enemies. See, our status as sinners before the Lord should give us perspective on our enemies. I remember being at this pastor's conference earlier this year, end of last year, and at the beginning of each of the kind of the sessions, we had some business stuff we had to do too. A pastor would get up and give a short homily. And a pastor from Hawaii came up to give this homily on this particular section. So it's only about a, a 10 minute, five to 10 minute little sermon about this particular section of Matthew. And this pastor and I and a bunch of the other pastors, we all have another pastor whose job is to provide pastoral care for pastors, the person who's caring for those who are caring for others. So this pastor is telling a story about our mutual friend. And he's sharing this story about how when they planted the church in Hawaii, they had these, they had real enemies. I mean, people building, you know, building codes, all these people that didn't want them to plant this church, that were actively working against them spitefully to stop them from planting this church. And so he's, he's having a, a soul care meeting with our mutual friend. And our friend says to him, are you blessing them? And this other pastor says, well, no, I'm not blessing them. I mean, you should see what they've what they've tried to do to us. They, they've, they've impeded our ability for the building, and they've, you know, we had spent all this money on this, and they've caused all these problems, and there's the lawyers, and the thing, and the thing. He says, are you blessing them? He said, well, no, you, you don't understand. I said, I can't, I can't do that. They're these terrible people. Do you believe they are created in the image of God? Well, I mean, yes, of course I believe they're created in the image of God. Everybody's here. Then you must bless them. That ended their conversation. Because that's really the real point. If we understand where our status is in sin and their status is in sin, we also have to understand our status in being created in the image of God and theirs as well. Everyone is created in the image of God, even those that deny God's very existence. And I didn't have this in my notes, but I think it's worth uh, worth this part of the, the verse here is worth mentioning at this place too, that because... He, he addresses this right in the text, the fact that everybody is created in the image of God. He says, 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. None of this changes the attacks that are levied against us. None of this changes the hatred that is tossed our way, but it does give us some insight into the why. If we understand where sinful hearts can come from, then we can begin the process of loving our enemies because it gives us perspective. It's the same when we consider everyone's status as being created in the image of God. It helps us understand the same for our enemies. That is what allows us to love them with agape love. You see, we love our enemies with agape love because God loves us with agape love. If we understand how we are loved in our depraved state, then we can understand how we are to go to others and to our enemies and love them in theirs. A man named Frederick Buchner put it this way, he says, the love for equals is a human thing, of a friend for a friend, a brother for a brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, and the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate, that's a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there's the love of the enemy, or love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Love for the enemy conquers the world. See, Jesus conquered the world with this type of love, and we are here to grow and build his kingdom here and now on earth, so we must love the way he loves if we want to conquer the way he conquers. But it's so much bigger than just love. It includes prayer, like I, my pastor friend said to the pastor who was speaking. Not only are we to love our enemies, because we can get into a trap. We'll just love them in my heart. I love my enemies in my heart. I don't have to do anything about it. We have to take it that next step forward. We have to pray for them. We are to pray blessings for them. We have to pray for our persecutors. Romans 12, 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Praying over enemies does a couple things. First, like I said earlier, we can't pray and bless people when we have hatred in our hearts. We can't do it through gritting teeth. Lord, just please bless these people so much. It doesn't work. The only way for us to effectively bless or pray for somebody is if our hearts are in a loving place. But there's a second part, and this is the one that we don't really like that much, but it's so important. And you can see where our sinful hearts get in because we don't love this one very much. Think about the benefit if our enemies are blessed. This is so hard. This is hard for me. It was hard for me. We think about this we talked about last week, returning folly for folly, because our hearts want revenge. We want justice. If we believe that we are responsible for revenge and justice, then our hearts absolutely will not pray blessings on our enemies. 
We're going to want them to hurt. We're going to want them to suffer. We're going to want them to hurt and suffer in the way that we have. We want lex talionis, that eye for an eye. But we want to be the judge and the jury and the executioner to go out and, and take task on those things. But when we pray blessings on our enemies, we remove ourselves from that. And what we are actually doing is we are praying that God will work in their hearts and will bless their lives as our life is blessed through him. And there is, family, a big blessing in that. Because just think about this. Really think about this. What would happen if God worked in your enemies' hearts? If God were to work so deep, to cut so deep into the hearts of our enemies, what would happen? Do you know what would happen? There would be the opportunity for them not to be enemies. The opportunity not to be in the battle. If God blesses your enemies as he's blessed you, then there's a chance for repentance and accountability and reconciliation. It is the actual opportunity to be joined together as brothers and sisters. Now you might say, I don't want that. They're my enemies. And that's the whole point. We are God's enemies reunited with him through his love and grace. Our enemies can have the same thing happen to them with God and also with us and them because God can do all things. He's the only one that can make crooked paths straight. He is the only one that can redeem sinners. He is the only one that can give new life. Why would we want anyone in the world to be unaware of that blessing, to not receive that blessing? Why wouldn't we want everybody in the world's hearts to be changed by God's word, to do God's will, to live a repentant life? Why wouldn't we want everyone to be cut deep by the truth of the gospel, driving them into accountability, humility, service, sacrificial love? See, when we pray blessings over our enemies, this is what we are praying for. We're praying for Christ to move and work in them as he has moved and worked in us. We're praying for accountability. We're praying for repentance. And we're praying for change. So many times people say, people can't change. I agree with that statement. Generally, if self-help worked, there would not be 300 new self-help books on the self-help bookshelf every single year. And there'd be a lot of broke people not making a bunch of self-help books too. Change by yourself cannot happen. It cannot happen by man's power. But through Christ, so many people have changed. I am living proof of this. Somebody recently made a comment. It was somebody I was flying with. They met a mutual, were flying with another mutual friend of ours, and they said, can you believe Craig is a pastor now? How did that even happen? <laughs> God can change hearts. God can bring people out of the, the deepest, darkest place of depravity and, and bring them into glorious new life. He can change everything about their lives. He's changed everything about our lives. It's God's doing, not our doing. There's another benefit too. Loving our enemies releases our hearts. It is one more way of preventing evil people from living rent-free in our heads. When we turn it over to God, what we are saying is that, Lord, it's an act of our faith, truthfully. Lord, I trust in you. I trust in your judgment. I trust in your vengeance. I believe you are the God who you say you are and will do the things that you will do and you will make every wrong right. And I don't have to be the instrument of your vengeance. I trust in your mercy. I trust in your wrath. I trust in your judgment.
That's why Jesus ends this in verse 48 with this. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now the word there is not an imperative. It's actually a future indicative. If you were to read it, it said, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Except Matthew uses the future indicative a lot as an imperative in the recounting of his gospel. So that kind of gives us two ways to think about this last statement. We're commanded to work on our perfection, but we also must be aware that our, our, our future perfection, the actual perfection, can only come through Christ. Full perfection is not available in a, in a fallen world. But it shouldn't stop us from working towards it. We can't have like a theological cop-out. We're like, well, there's sin and the world's terrible. There's nothing I can do about it. That's not what God says. We have to be striving towards. You shall be perfect. What it means is that the fruits of our faith, the outcropping of our faith, should be the mortar that we use to establish God's kingdom here. We're representatives of Christ's kingdom. So we should want to be more like our Father. We should want to emulate his ways. And sometimes, family, we're going to suck at it. But God loves us, even in that place, too. But we are forward-looking people. We are walking in that direction. And when we suck at it, we repent. And we, we come together. That's why we confess our sins out loud. Why we, we say the confession of sin where we do early in the service, we are acknowledging that all of us are in that place communally because we strengthen each other in that place through the hope and the glory that God has given us. That's the difference between the pagans and the believers. The pagans have a support structure based on mutual hate. We have a support structure rooted in agape love, and when we slide into places, sinful places we're not supposed to be, we lovingly support and pull each other out of that place. And the way that we do that is we emulate God's love, and we do that by loving our enemies. Now, I'm not going to pretend for even a second this is easy for any of us. But I will tell you it's critical. And it's commanded. God commands us to live this way as Christians, and so we are to do our best to live this way as Christians. We are not legalists, but that doesn't change the fact that God has given us commandments. Our salvation isn't based on those, but fruits of our faith, while we're in faith, things will change. There are worldly benefits as well to following commandments. Even if there weren't, we still have to follow them. But through God's grace, he gives us common grace through benefits of following his commandments. Like not allowing our enemies to live rent-free in our head. By loving our enemies, it removes those murderous thoughts, those murderous hearts that we have. And what it does is it demonstrates our trust in the Lord to the greater world outside of us. Praying blessing on our enemies with a loving heart hopefully will bring the fruits of faith into their life. God can and does work in amazing ways, and he draws all kinds of people to himself. He can do all things. So we must pray that our enemies become men of real faith, real Christian faith, that their hearts are turned from stone to joy. And even if we don't see our enemies' hearts turn, or when we struggle loving our enemies sacrificially because it's just so difficult, we still do it because God's told us that that is the right way for us to live our lives. We do it because we are to be representatives of his kingdom on earth. 
We're going to say the Lord's Prayer in a little bit as we come to the table. On earth as it is in heaven. Also, loving your enemies is about the most countercultural thing you can do in 2022. If you want to be edgy, and you all know that I like to be edgy, try loving your enemies. Do it with deep Christian affection. Let us be people who conquer the world with God's love. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly thankful and grateful that you love us. You love us despite all of our faults, past, present, and future. You love us so much that you sent your son to die for us. You love us so much that you knew us before we were even born. Lord, we, we all struggle. We struggle loving our enemies. We struggle loving those who, who want to harm us, cause us pain, hurt us. So Lord, this, as we leave this place, as we enter this week, we ask for your prayers of blessing on us, prayers of protection on us. Lift us up, Lord, that we can live in this manner, that we can love our enemies with agape love, that we can pray blessing over them, that they may be joined into your kingdom, reconciled to you, that they can see the path of light that only comes through following your Son. Let us be united then as brothers and sisters, not enemies, in a love that can only come from a loving God. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us when we don't live up to this as well as we should. Thank you, Lord, for your strength. We know that we can do all things through you and you alone. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.